Hello and welcome to The Zeros and if this is the first time you're listening to this show The Zeros are a set of years, the years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero and we explore how much the popular culture and events of these years belong more in our imagination to the decade just gone or the decade to come. So in this series, series one, we're looking at 1990 and asking, is it more of a 1980s year or more of a 1990s year when you think about what we associate with those decades? This is our second bonus episode. The main episodes explore popular culture. These bonus episodes are more about history. And today we have an amazing guest, the British Australian human rights campaigner, Peter Tatchell, who has witnessed the very long arc of history of the LGBT liberation movement and why we've decided to interview him and we were very very grateful that he agreed to be interviewed by us is that in our zero year 1990 Peter founded the direct action organization Outrage which he did as you will hear as a direct response to the appalling homophobia in Britain at that time that was manifesting itself both in the law as well as in casual violence and horrible policing. So you'll hear lots more from Peter. It was a very interesting interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. And what I'll warn you is if you are sensitive to hearing stories about homophobic violence, repression and discrimination, If that's something you really don't want to hear about, we get into a lot of detail about that. We discuss some of the discriminatory language that was used at the time. And yes, if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe leave this one out. But otherwise, I would say, please get stuck in. It is very, very illuminating to hear how far we as a society have come since 1990. Peter, thanks for joining us. So, as we always do in the Zeros, we're going to start with a bit of a a time travel thought experiment. And this time I'm going to take you back to something I think you'd be very familiar with, which was a London Pride March um, in 1986. And in this thought experiment, I'm having you marching with an 18-year-old gay man from Dublin who's just moved to London. And as you're walking along, uh, somebody lets off a smoke bomb. And when the smoke clears, the two of you have fallen through a time warp into 1994's London Pride. So first of all, can you give me a sense of what you remember about uh, Pride marches in the mid-80s and what it would have been like in 1986? And then give us a sense of some of the, the differences you you two will notice when you realise that you've fallen through a time warp. Well, in 1986, I was 34 years old. Uh, I had been one of the people who helped organise the first Pride Parade in Britain in 1972. And we had seen a steady, slow increase in numbers over the years. But even as late as 1986, there were probably only 10 or 12,000, maybe 15,000 tops in the London Pride Parade. So it was still quite small. Back in those days, of course, we were gripped by the Thatcher government. Uh, Section 28 had not yet been implemented, but the government had embarked on two big political campaigns. One was to return to Victorian values, and the other one was to defend family values. And neither had any place for 
LGBT plus people. So was there any hint at all in 86, any talk at all about Section 28, or was this something that would surprise everyone a couple of years later? The talk of Section 28 only began in 1987. Yeah. So in 1986, we were still in blissful ignorance. (laughs) Good heavens. The other thing to say is back in the mid-80s, what was the relationship with with the police like um, as you were marching along? You know, uh, any sort of public uh, demonstration or march or celebration, you've always got the police there. What what would have the, the relationship between the marching and the police been like in 86? Well, the police were certainly not marching in the parade. <laughs> no, I would <laughs> um, The level of hostility was somewhat less than it had been in the 1970s, but it certainly wasn't uh, welcoming or, you know, embracing. So if we then get a picture of, uh, as you turn around and realise in your 1994, what's the first thing that strikes you where you go, oh, this is different? Well, of course, by then I was uh, 42. (laughs) Um, The Pride Parade in 1994 in London was about five times larger, was close to 100,000 people. Um, Certainly the depth and range of community representation was much greater than it had been even in 1986. So you got many, many more different organizations from different parts of the country, representing different communities, different campaign groups. Um, It was, pretty pretty different from 1986 um again the police were not in the parade (laughs) yeah um that that was uh something they would never do nor were the armed forces or any of the other major social institutions that we now associate with pride parades yes um it was quite joyful but also angry Um, Joyful that the age of consent for gay and bisexual men had been reduced from 21 to 18 in February 1984, but angry that it had not been equalised at 16. And of course, um, there was also some joy in the fact that as a result of the campaign by the Direct Action Group Outrage, the numbers of gay and bisexual men arrested and convicted for consenting offences was beginning to fall very dramatically. That's um, something that I think, yes, we'll we'll talk a bit more about that when we head back to 1990, which was just how policed and criminalised consensual adult sex was even after 1967. What about, um, do you remember much of a talk about the situation where Ireland had leapfrogged the UK in that uh, in the decriminalization of gay sex in the Republic, they equalized the age of consent. Was there much talk about that around that time in London? Well, yes, you're, you're right. The Republic of Ireland decriminalized uh, homosexuality in 1993 after a long legal battle pioneered by Senator David Norris, who took his case to the European Court of Human Rights and won. And Part of that deal was there had to be not only decriminalization, but an equal age of consent. And this was at a time when England and Wales still had a discriminatory age of consent. So Ireland sort of suddenly led the way. Indeed. Except for north of the border and where I'm sitting now, where 
unfortunately it took a lot longer to 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 equalize things but um yes the republic that is such an interesting sort of like that not only did they decriminalize but they did really leapfrog the uk in that sense just as you said because because of the court rulings so, and, and it also passed legislation to outlaw incitement to hatred based on sexual orientation back in 1989. Well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen in England and Wales till nearly two decades later. Flipping heck. It's, it's, it's so, I mean, this is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is to give people a, a real sense of the, the details of history that don't get spoken about enough. Um, what, what would 1986 peter have felt like talking to fellow marchers in 1994 and hearing about just how wicked section 28 was well of course the 1980s was the epicenter of the hiv aids pandemic so people were dying left right and center there was no cure no treatment um HIV and AIDS was being used as a whipping board against the LGBT plus community. It was described as, quote, the gay plague. Uh, and it coincided with a huge rise in toxic media attacks. So, for example, you had front page headlines um, criticizing the campaign to decriminalize LGBT plus people in the armed forces. The headline was, quote, in the Sun newspaper, quote, Poofters on Parade. Oh uh, another one where gay clergy were challenging being dismissed from the Church of England. Uh, that was, quote, Poofs in the Pulpit. Oh. Um, it, it was a very, very toxic, hostile atmosphere. And the LGBT plus community very much felt under attack. You know, we were deemed to be, quote, the enemy within. And um, that made life very, very tough. So in the 1980s, the arrests and convictions of gay and bisexual men rocketed. Uh, by 1989, in England and Wales, the number of men convicted of the consenting offence of gross indecency, the same law that was used to send Oscar Wilde to prison in 1895 and Alan Turing to a chemical castration, uh, that law, the numbers was, was almost as great as in 1954-55, when male homosexuality was totally illegal and when uh, the country was gripped by a McCarthyite style anti-gay witch hunt. So 1989 was the high point of police repression in the post-1967 era, because, of course, 1967, the Sexual Offences Act of that year, first of all, only applied to England and Wales. It wasn't extended to Scotland until 1980 and not to Northern Ireland until 1981. It did not apply to the armed forces or the Merchant Navy, um, only um, applied in cases where two men were both aged 21 or over. And the sexual act had to take place in the privacy of a person's own home behind locked doors and windows with the curtains drawn and with no other person present in any part of the house. So it was a very limited partial decriminalization. And uh, in the 1980s, coinciding with the Thatcher campaign for Victorian values and family values, 
and the AIDS hysteria and pandemic, arrests and convictions rocketed to that high point in 1989. It's, it's so interesting to... Because a lot of our listeners will have heard the the episodes on all the popular culture and get this rosy image of a kind of era of Stock Aiken and Waterman and Fun Pop and, uh, you know, the second summer of love. But actually, this was an era of enormous normalized prejudice, of a complete misprioritization of policing and the complete, like, demonization of a community or a set of communities. Um and, and you're, you're right. You're right. absolutely right. I mean, coinciding with a huge spike in arrests and convictions of gay and bisexual men for consenting behaviour was also a huge uh, explosion in queer bashing violence and murders. Uh, myself and the then editor of Gay Times magazine, David Smith, based on information we gleaned from newspapers, we identified in the period 1986 to 1991, 51 instances where men were murdered, where the circumstances pointed to a homophobic motive. 51 in that narrow five-year period. And those are just the ones we knew about. There were probably many more that we didn't come across. They were perhaps just reported in local newspapers in far-flung parts of the country, which we had no access to. So you can see that um, the police priority was to arrest us, but not protect us, because universally, with some exceptions, but not many, police investigations of those murders were perfunctory and half-hearted. And, and then in 1987-88, the government decides to make it that a teacher is committing a criminal offence for telling a child coming to them looking for counselling that it's okay. The, the Section 28 was was such a, a ramping up of that that demonization and anti-normalization that uh, that seemed to be coming straight from number 10. It, it meant that a whole generation of young LGBT plus kids got no support, validation or information of any kind during their schooling years. Yeah, and particularly if they were closeted and not out or supported by their parents, which was the case back in those days, they were totally isolated and vulnerable. It, it, no wonder it led to astronomical levels of depression, anxiety, and even self-harm. Again, you know, this is this is the era of that, that feels so modern when you see clip shows, and yet it is so Victorian in, in what was going on for so many people who were not... With, within that which was deemed as acceptable by the status quo. Um, well, we... of course, the, the irony was that this repression and this um, toxic atmosphere did produce resistance. You know, the, um, the Pride Parade in 1987 was about 15,000 people. In 1988, after the passage of Section 28, it jumped to nearly 30,000. So it almost doubled overnight and it brought both the lesbian and gay communities together in a way which hadn't happened for, well, close on 20 years. Wow. Um, you know, after the gay liberation front era, most lesbians went into either lesbian only organizations or to the wider women's movement. But HIV and AIDS plus Section 28 brought us all back together. And it was, in fact, the making 
of our modern day community and movement. Which is, I think, what I'd like to get on to then is if we hit 1990, um, what what's really noticeable by then is you have two um, sort of complementary uh, and maybe at times competing um, LGBT plus right or rights organisations founded in the UK in 1989, Stonewall, and then 1990, yourself and others founded Outrage. Um, can you give us a bit of context to sort of how those two organisations were founded and about the decision of, of everyone who was an outrage to start a direct action movement that was distinct from Stonewall? Well, Stonewall was very much an organisation that came into being off the back of the Section 28 campaign. The campaign against Section 28 brought people together and out of that Stonewall emerged as a parliamentary lobbying group. Um, outrage emerged a year later, largely in response to the police failing to protect our community against homophobic, biphobic and transphobic violence, and in reaction to the fact they were putting enormous resources into arresting gay and bisexual men for consenting behaviour where no one was harmed and no one had complained. So it was that toxic combination that led to outrage largely prompted specifically by the kicking to death of the gay actor Michael Booth in West London. That for us was just, it was just the last straw. This, he, his murder was the latest of a whole series. And yet the police were not taking queer bashing violence seriously. Instead, they were hanging around public toilets or parks to lure gay men into committing offences and then arresting them. And we very much took our our inspiration from the suffragettes and from the black civil rights movement in America. So we were committed to nonviolent direct action and where necessary civil disobedience to break unjust homophobic laws in order to um, challenge uh, prevailing anti-LGBT attitudes, institutions and laws. My, my sort of, general picture of, of the late 80s sort of after the minor strike and after Orgrieve was that there was a period sort of in the late 80s where direct action where mass manifestations were not as uh, sort of were, were not and this is just my own I was a young teenager at the time so correct me if I'm wrong but in general activism in the late 80s took a bit of a dip it would seem and then with yourselves in 1990 and then also the the poll tax um protests that that suddenly there's a there's a big upturn in direct action in the 90s it seems to be starting then am i wrong about that is that just misremembering of a of a teenager sitting in belfast <laughs> broadly you're right i mean as well as the anti-poll tax protest there are also the big greenham common and campaign of nuclear nuclear disarmament sorry campaign against nuclear disarmament protests against the sighting of um, cruise missiles in the UK. Um, so outrage really segued into that. Um, and in fact, you know, in terms of one specific community, um, I think probably outrage, it's fair to say, um, over the following few years mounted the most sustained direct action protest Britain had seen since the suffragettes. No, indeed, indeed. Um, and uh, yes, I certainly remember very, very soon after its foundation, you guys making great headlines. And 
when I went to work in activism myself in the in the late noughties and onwards with Friends of the Earth, you know, it, you guys would always have been the the gold standards <laughs> standard that we'd have looked to. Of like, you know, can we get that level of headline? Can we get that level of direct action? That level of consciousness raising by what we're doing here? Um, and uh, I think we've already covered sort of just just how utterly limiting the the right to be gay was under the 1967 laws um the situation with hiv aids which had been uh, a just such a such a horror show in the 80s um there was the beginning of hope uh, by 1990 i think i'm right with, with azt with the what i think what you used to call it the triple cocktail what i'm right in saying that that by then, pharmaceutically was there, but the the right to treatment still wasn't uh, where it should have been. Is that fair to say? Well, there wasn't really any viable treatments until the mid 1990s. Okay, okay. When combination therapy and or before that antiretrovirals um, came on stream, so people were still dying, even in 1994, inclu- including my friend, the filmmaker Derek Jarman. Um, yeah. There had been certainly some progress, but the the, the verification of, of the of the new treatments, the trials, the certification of their efficacy was not really established until 1995. Oh, and the and the people we lost along the way before then, uh, including Freddie Mercury, Kenny Everett. She said Derek Jarman. Just yeah, it was still such a a regular story in the news of famous people who 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 it was killing into the 90s um and what is a great tragedy which many people don't realize is that getting a treatment for hiv was massively delayed by the huge amount of money that was being spent on uh, laboratory animal experiments which were not applicable to humans so for example way back in 1989 merck sharp and dome developed the first protease inhibitor to treat HIV, but they tested it on dogs and rats and they all died. So they abandoned it. And it wasn't until 1994, 95, they came back with a new protease inhibitor, but based on the same core principles, um, which did work, um, including in humans. The question of course is, did the version they used or developed in 1989, would that have killed humans? Or was it only killing dogs and rats because of their different physiology? And if, if, it, if it had worked in 1989, uh, tens of thousands of people's lives would have been saved. It's, it's cert- certainly, the, I remember uh, watching the uh, TV special Red Hot and Blue on World's AIDS Day in 1990, which was broadcast on Channel 4, where um, the uh, a lot of the imagery was about um, health rights and, and the absolute lack of prioritization um, for healthcare and for research uh, that was still lingering into the 90s, just the lack of, uh, the lack of concern about this global pandemic um, because of the homophobia that was still so central to public discourse about it. Um, uh, it, was, it was very much still seen as a gay disease. And uh, that meant that 
people who weren't gay thought they were sort of immune or and also of course they thought the gay people were a great threat and that you should stay away from gay people because they'll give you hiv there was a huge amount of ignorance and prejudice no indeed and and more generally in popular culture um what are your memories of representation in popular culture especially in in the uk at that time just not not just about hiv aids but just <coughs> generally about um the lgbti plus communities well by the late 1980s we began to see uh and early 1990s we began to see the first few public figures come out as gay so chris smith way back in 1984 became the first openly gay mp um we had a series of pop stars from mark armand andy bell jimmy somerville boy george they came they came out and yeah the other thing i remember uh in the late 80s the first uh gay couple in a british soap opera in eastenders that's right yeah um uh, michael cashman um now a lord uh, he played colin in eastenders and that was the first gay kiss on british tv <laughs> wow <laughs> and the, and yet uh when you fast forward to 1994 um channel 4 decided that uh that a quite chaste kiss between two women would have uh, put kids off their saturday night ch- chips and uh refused to repeat uh, a very very short peck on the lips between two women on the holly uh, the brookside omnibus so it was still something so controversial absolutely still there was incredible reticence on behalf of uh, tv broadcasters to um show show and represent um lgbt people and same sex couples and and talking about some of the things that outrage was working on in 1990 part of the the sort of the regulation of uh, gay people, gay men especially, was um, PDAs, public displays of affection, um, that it was still a criminal offence to hold hands or kiss in public if you were uh, both of the same sex. And uh, a lot of your direct action was based around that, wasn't it? Yeah, I think holding hands wasn't so much of a problem by the 1980s, although it certainly could get you queer bashed. Um, but Kissing or cuddling definitely was still a no-no right up into the early 1990s. Now, I can remember a lesbian couple um, gave each other a goodnight kiss at um, Victoria train station and ended up being arrested, convicted under the Public Order Act. And I think they were fined £60. Oh, it was said in court that their, their behaviour was likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress to members of the public. And can we talk a bit then, sort of moving away from the, the UK, tell us, um, give us a bit of a picture of, especially um, bearing in mind that a lot of the popular culture that's been talked about in the Zero series has been about stuff that was coming out of the US. So we're in the era of grunge, in the era of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and hip-hop. Um, give us a sense of just how awful um, the US was as a as a place for people from the lgbti plus communities there were still many u.s states that criminalized same-sex relations um there were still many many states that had no protection for lgbt plus people against discrimination 
Um, in fact, it wasn't until the late 1990s that the US Supreme Court finally declared um, the ban on same-sex acts illegal, unconstitutional. So, so yeah. the US was in many respects lagging behind um, much of Western Europe. And coming back to Europe, um, what would you say the least worst nations, well, not just Europe, but around the world, what would have been the least worst nations uh, for anyone from those communities in 1990? The most progressive countries in 1990 were um, the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. They were leaps ahead of anywhere else, including the UK. It's just, yeah. I don't think it would surprise many people that head to the north of Europe and things tend to be more progressive. They, they, had, your... they, they had legal protection. These countries had legal protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation. Um, you know, Denmark was the first country in the world to have um, legal recognition for same-sex partnerships uh, in 1989. So, you know, there was, there was progress in these other countries, whereas in Britain, um, full protection against discrimination didn't happen in England and Wales until 2007, 2008. Let's sort of narrow it back down again um, and where you were at in 1990. Um, what were those early days at Outrage like when you when you guys were, were founding and setting up? It felt for me a bit like, here we go again, <laughs> because of course I'd been through the earlier direct action movement the Gay Liberation Front in the early part of the 1970s. Um, but quite clearly, all of us in the Gay Liberation Front knew that although we had helped change the mainstream LGBT mentality from victims to victors, you know, we'd, we'd given the, a shot in the arm of self-confidence and self-worth to LGBT plus people, we did not succeed in changing any laws or institutions. Well, to some extent, we did change. You know, we, we, we finally got the medical and psychiatric professions to officially ditch the idea that gay people were sick and in need of curing. That was, that was a success. Um, in some individual schools, we, we, we got them to do some degree of LGBT plus education or support. But it was very patchy and very uneven and by today's standards, actually quite poor, but it was better than what had existed previously. Um, we'd also made a cultural impact in the Gay Liberation Front um, in terms of just through protest, um, giving queer people a visibility, you know, a presence, an acknowledgement in the public space. Um, and I suppose also we began to change attitudes, you know, through the protests and, you know, subsequent TV, radio programs, discussions happened and, you know, we were, had an opportunity, a platform to uh, express the concerns and aspirations of our community. I've got to hasten that, that was, that was pretty, still pretty rare in, in the 1970s. Very rare, in fact, but but there, but it was something. It was something that hadn't happened before. I think, in terms of you know, nineteen ninety, um, it felt like the changes that should have happened 
hadn't and you know why not you know why 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 were we still being held down and held back um people felt angry you know particularly angry about the level of arrests convictions and sometimes imprisonments that were still happening in 1990 for consenting victimless behavior but also um anger at the way in which the police and the wider society didn't seem to give a damn about the scale of homophobic violence and even actual murders with the fall of Thatcher in 1990 uh now that was late that year was there a sense that that she had been a lightning rod for a lot of the Tories most toxic homophobia like like was it easier to get to the the partial victory of 1994 i know it was nowhere near satisfying enough but to go from her virulent victorianization of uh values in the uk in the late 80s to to even getting to dropping the age of consent to 18 in 1994 did you notice it was easier to get things done or to have more of a sense of optimism with her passing or was it still just as shocking as before well, i think we need to be clear that Thatcher herself personally oversaw the family values and return to Victorian values campaigns. Um, she spoke out at the 1987 Tory party conference attacking the right to be gay. Now that sent a signal, a personal signal from the prime minister that these wider attacks upon our community were with her approval. that that she was backing this bid to hold back the just demand for lgbt plus rights um so with her passing to some extent i would say that open doors but you've got to remember that margaret thatcher was not alone she was just the figurehead the leader but there were so many other conservative mp's who shared her views or worse you know there was a conservative councillor who during the hiv aids pandemic said that all gay people should be rounded up and gassed others were saying we should be put into quarantine camps um that our access to public spaces should be denied um you know so the the passing of thatcher was not a passing of those kind of attitudes although thanks to the work of stonewall outrage those attitudes found less acceptability in the wider population they were still quite popular but not as popular and not as extreme as say 10 years previously if we um look on into the 90s and to a new growing especially anti-globalization movement and a new era of mass protest um do you look at that and think yeah we we were the trailblazers a bit like that that outrage where there that that those very high profile actions you took that they they did give inspiration to others to then move into that next era of activism well certainly i know anecdotally that some people in the anti roads protest campaigns i know some of the people there took inspiration from outrage um likewise some of the animal rights movement although they were pretty already established doing direct action um 
But, you know, I think we were probably, for some people, an inspiration. But I think all these movements had their own genesis. You know, they, they evolved in their own way, their own circumstances. And I think if outrage hadn't been there, I think probably most of them would have happened anyway. But it would be nice to think that <laughs> we helped inspire others. Just as, as I said, the suffragettes and the black civil rights movement inspired us. No, indeed. And as I said, certainly you guys were were an organisation that we had great regard for when I w- we were talking about t- taking actions in, in the noughties and teens when I was at Friends of the Earth. Um, just to, a couple of last quick questions. One, to give listeners a sense of just how bad things were. Can you think of any countries now uh, who are famously sort of systemically homophobic transphobic that you could point to and say that's pretty much what we were dealing with in 1990 well i suppose you could say that um russia's law against quote the promotion of non-traditional sexual relations was almost a copybook cut and paste of section 28 um and there's been quite a few other countries that have done similar so you look at the, the legislation in poland and hungary Again, it has a, has a whiff of Section 28 there, and it's shocking to think that, however perhaps unintentional, uh, that legislation in Britain provided a template for these other very authoritarian countries. One last question then. If you could broadcast back a message to yourself in 1990, what, what would you be telling him? If I could broadcast to myself back in 1990, I would say, you've got no idea how much resistance you're going to face. <laughs> <laughs> but stick at it, because in the end, you will win. Even on the issue of same-sex marriage, which seems such a long, long, long way away, you will eventually get that. So hang on in there, keep fighting, never give up, because patience and determination will win out. Wow, that's a, a message we all need to keep telling ourselves all the time, not just to our past selves. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, this time today and giving us a really excellent um, trip back into the past and a a much deeper insight of just how far we had to go as well as have to go um, for equality and justice for everyone. Um, And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for giving us your time. Well, it's my pleasure and I send my best wishes to all your listeners. And I'll just sign up by saying... I'll just start off by saying, if you want to find out more, uh, please go to my website, which is petertatchellfoundation.org. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, join us. Uh, If you give us your email address, uh, we will send you a weekly bulletin on LGBT plus and other human rights issues. Most of them quite serious, but some quirky ones as well. And there's there's no charge. It's totally free. So feel free to to join us and become part of our little human rights community. Thank you so much. And I'll put the link for that in the show description as well. Great. And a very big thank you to Peter. I think we can all agree that the course of history doesn't run smooth um, and that backward steps can happen as they did in the late 80s. But it is definitely the case that direct action does work and has worked in this case. If you would like to hear much more about Peter's life and struggles, then I recommend that you watch Hating Peter Tatchell, the documentary about Peter and his life on Netflix. 
again, I would just like to thank Peter so much for taking the time to talk to us. I will be putting links in the description to, first of all, Peter's own website. Please sign up for their mailing list to get regular news about the struggle for LGBT liberation all around the world. And also I'll be putting a link up to that documentary. That's all for now. On Friday, you will be able to hear Susie, who you may have heard if you've already listened to the episode on Thatcher. And we will be looking at the history of television in the late 80s and early 90s and 1990 itself. So looking forward to hearing that and I'll see you then. No, no, no.